Cricket Podcast Storytime 155. The 155th time we've switched on the recorder uh, to talk about the history and the numbers and the quirks of a game across decades. It is the uh, 19th of October. Why is that relevant, Jeff, as I welcome you? Because Bill Ponsford was born on this day in 1900. So Bill Ponsford uh, was born 123 years ago to this day. Hello to you. That felt relevant. That did feel relevant. Did Bill Ponsford ever make 123? Because if he did, that would be awesome. <laughs> but I don't know because I didn't know that you were going to lead with that particular piece of information. <laughs> it's the sort of thing where had I had 10 more minutes to prep and I wasn't caught in a storm, as you can probably tell I'm mm-hmm. dripping wet at the moment, I might have seen fit to have looked it up. But um, we're on the clock today because you're in India and I'm in London and we both yep. have things to do. But we were always going to squeeze in um, story time 155. What I can tell you is that 155 is what Ben Stokes made at Lords um, in 2023 when he went absolutely bananas near the end of that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, pointless but fun frolic after everybody got mad at Lords. Um, so there's a 155 for you. Jeff, we're, we're just got a few bits and bobs to get through before taking on some new numbers. Operation Find Richard Stokes. I mean, you, you, mm-hmm. is it Strokes or Stokes? Stokes, not the Stokes, Strokes, but Stokes. Stokes. Not the Strokes. Um, staying with that theme. Um, this was the man who reportedly saw two Tenfers and El Cumbles in 1999 and Jim Lakers in 1956. We've had some further correspondence from Greg in Yorkshire on our Discord channel. It feels like we're getting mm-hmm. closer here. Well, what we've discovered is that Richard Stokes is a uh, a man of international reputation. So we originally the story just said, well, he lived in Germany and, and he was on a business trip to India and that's why he ended up rocking up to um, to the ground in Delhi to see that tenfer. But he's the professor of leader at the Royal Academy of Music and, and, and leader is like a, you know, form of song, verse, chanting, Etc. And he's got this extensive academic career. So I've just been um, searching around him online, figuring out what he's been up to. He's done English translations of Kafka, a couple of, of the trial and All Metamorphosis, right. which is a pretty pretty cool thing to do. And edited a bunch of massive anthologies of uh, you know the Penguin Book of English Song, Seven Centuries of Poetry from Chaucer to Auden, for instance. So you know, I mean, I, I have a poetry background and I'm pretty interested in this kind of stuff. So I'm interested to find that Richard Stokes is, is, is maybe our kind of guy. But So it makes me more curious. I'd like to talk to him not so much about the cricket, but just to talk to <laughs> Richard Stokes about what he's been up to in all of the time. He's obviously a, what's a, what do you call it, a polyglot, somebody who speaks a lot of languages because he's done a bunch of things that looks like with French and Spanish and German. So he's been on the continent figuring out how everybody gets along, how they communicate and how he can get involved. And I like that attitude. Cool. Nice one. Well, if you can do any more research for us during the week, given that Jeff's pretty busy as so am I and get closer to finding Richard Stokes, just let him know. If yeah. we can get an address or an email address, we will we will try and um, get him on for mm. an interview at some point uh, sooner rather than later. Jeff, a wonderful photo was tweeted into my I like favorite. the idea if you, that you just get his address and just doorstop him, you know, yeah, sort yeah. of like you're from the local paper, you know. <laughs> Mr. Stokes, we hear that you've been involved in controversial cricket observing activities. What do you have to say? Do you have a statement? A current affair style jumping out of the wardrobe or, or something along those lines. Mm. Um, yeah, I had this great photo tweeted into my feed uh, by an account called Historic Sporting Pictures. The celebration uh, around the centenary test where 
England played Australia at, um, at Lords in 1980, across the river at the Oval right. on the 27th of August so as part of the broader festivities. Old England played Old Australia. Old Australia won by eight wickets. And this is a photo here of Fred Truman and Godfrey Evans uh, and Ken Barrington is in a, a second photograph. He made 45 and, of course, Ken Barrington died not long after that test match. But going through the scorecard, as I was always going to do after reading that and thinking, I better jump on Cricket Archive and take a squiz. You know, Edrich, Cowdery, who captained, Barrington, Mike Smith, Basil de Oliveira, Jim Parks, yeah. Fred Titmus, Fred Truman. How old's Fred Truman in 1980? Bloody hell. He, um, fucking hell, it's Fred Truman. Oh. Fucking hell, it's Fred Titmus. He's playing as well. Um, uh, Locke, Tyson. I mean, there's some and, – and, and the aforementioned Evans, who didn't bat but, of course, kept wicket. Mm. Then for Australia – Bobby Simpson opening with Ian Redpath, Bob Cowper, Keith Stackpole, Neil Harvey, who was 29 not out at the end, batting uh, with uh, Stackpole in the chase, then Barry Jarman, Tom Vivas, who gets more mentions than he really should on this podcast, oh, yes. Alan Connolly, Johnny Gleeson, Brian Tabor, who we referenced not long ago when he, when he passed away. He made a massive contribution to Australian youth cricket after playing. So, yeah, there's, there's this game that happened at the Oval, and I, I wish to learn more about it. I mean, we've got oh. the card. There are members of those teams who are still alive. And I love the idea that they even thought of it in the first place. And now we know there's going to be a game on the, is it the sesquicentenary of the first test? Yes, it is. Well done. Uh, in Melbourne in, in 2027. We should be angling for an old England against old Australia to be played probably not at the MCG, but I don't know, maybe at the Junction Oval or something like that. And then when hopefully uh, they have the sesquicentenary effort in England in 2030, we can once again do it at the Oval when presumably that anniversary game will be played at Lords. These things are all possible if we want them to be. Hello, Homer. This is God. Free Evans, the former <laughs> wicketkeeper for the England <laughs> Test team. Um, I, I love... <laughs> I love that he rocked up. Uh, I love that, hang on, that, that Neil Harvey was batting with Ian Redpath. Ian Redpath would have just finished playing around that point. He would have, he, he barely qualifies as old. Well, it's a good point. Stage. It's a good point. Um, I mean, that, Neil Harvey would have been ancient. Yeah, well, Neil Harvey, I mean, obviously made his debut, as we know, in 1947 as a, just out of school. So he was born roughly 1930, if I was taking a punt. That means he debuts at nineteen, doesn't he? So, so I think, I think he might even be you know, eighteen in forty-seven. But anyway, he's, he's, you know, he's roughly born in, let's say, 1930 for the sake of the, the round number. And this is 1980. So he's 50 uh, by the time uh, mm. this game's being played, whereas most of the guys in the game are a fair bit younger. And, yeah, Truman, who finished up in the late 60s for Yorkshire, I'm pretty sure he was still going through then. So he might have been mm-hmm. you know, close to close to 50, but, but, yeah, but not quite. He crossed over with Harvey for a lot of his career, of course. So, anyway, there you go. I thought you'd enjoy that, Jeff. Old England versus Old Australia in August 1980. I do enjoy it. I wonder whether you could get anybody. I wonder whether anybody from the centenary test in in 1977 would be in decent enough shape to get on the paddock for the wow. 150 years later. Now that's a good idea. Who was a younger player? I mean, not even Derek, a younger Derek player. Randall. Derek Randall. Derek Randall's pretty fit. And Randall could, and Randall was relatively young in '77, wasn't he? He was about 25 or 26, I reckon. I'm I'm right in saying so. Mm-hmm. He'll be about mid 70s, so we can get him on the park against I don't know, against Hados or something like that. Mm. Um, <laughs> one, one of the past players who would be enthusiastic about. Uh, taking the field for Australia and wearing the the crest on the chest again. You know what? You know why it's the emu and the kangaroo on the coat of arms, Jeff? Because neither of them can take a backward step. Mate, they all be out there like a shot for old Australia. I'll tell you what. <laughs> Another anniversary this week, uh, and a big congratulations as well, because we do uh, 
use a lot of their research in our research for this show. The Association of Cricket Statisticians and Historians have celebrated their 50th anniversary. They had their lunch at Leicestershire County Cricket Club at Grace Road on Saturday. Andrew Sampson was there. I'm keen to um, interview uh, Samo or, or maybe someone else from that organisation just to talk about their work over five decades. And, you know, it's been great to be able to dig into their uh, resources from time to time. But, yeah, I think that had I been available on Saturday, I would have loved to have gone to that. Yes, safe to say that without the Association of Cricket Statisticians um, lists of 10 wicket matches in first-class cricket, we would have had a lot less to talk about on this show. It's the, du- it's the double centuries list, isn't it? Every double century yep. in first-class cricket is listed. So, I mean, and, and of course, mm. often we're searching for numbers that are quite a lot higher than that. But, yeah, tenfers, ninefers, double tons, and also like 14, mm-hmm. 15, 16 wicket matches. It's always useful being yeah. able to dig into their resource. And, and that gives you the starting point, right? It doesn't give you the story. We no, still have no. to go and find the story. But it, it, at least at least it's the compass that lets you know in which direction you're facing. Um, and so in the dark, dark woods of story time, the ACS has so often been that uh, a glow-in-the-dark compass or been you know, the little will-o'-the-wisp sprite that instead of leading us into the swamps, leads us to safety. Bless you and all who sail within you. And what do you know, Jeff? As we start our new numbers this week, playing the game which is called... Nerd Pledge! We can explain more of that. And you know what? I'll do it. I'll do it instead. Nerd Pledge is the game we play on The Final Word where people contribute sums of money, sometimes small, sometimes big, often numbers that relate to something that's happened in cricket over the last, say, 250 years or thereabouts. And then we try and match the number with a story. And that is how The Final Word world circulates. The number that I'm going to start with today is from Claire McQuillan. Claire is a new pledger. Bless her for that. Her number is 227. And Jeff, she gave me the best kind of clue. And the kind of clue where I went straight to the aforementioned page for Double Tons. Yes, the clue is not a clue. The clue is a request for £2.27. She said, my number is 227. Tell me a story, please. Beautiful, Claire. Right. So, look, I could have told you the story of Wally Hammond for he walk at 227, but we talk enough about uh, Wally and his broken cock and other things he's done um, in his cricketing career. Um, so I'll, I'll mm. you know, that, that would have been the Broke easy one. a lot one. of records and one cock. <laughs> that we know of. KP played um, 227 uh, test innings. There's 43 <laughs> 227 uh, in first-class cricket, um, including one from KP, as it turns out, and a brilliant innings that I witnessed, um, his 227 at Adelaide in 2010. Were you with that, Jeff? Did you fly over for the um, Adelaide Test of 2010? 2010, no. I was, where was I? Maybe I was in it, living in Argentina at the right, time, I think, right. around about that one. So I was listening to it on the radio, I reckon. Could bat, um, regardless of Twitter or otherwise, um, but nobody's ever really argued with that fact. No, no, there's no doubt that he's a fabulous cricketer. Um, and yeah, that, that innings, uh, I, well, I remember slabs of it, but it was the first summer where I was officially a member of the SACA, so I spent most of the day outside. But yeah, did make the most of um, a couple of gorgeous days there as uh, uh, England made the most of the, the head start. They got in the series batting so well at Brisbane and did so again at Adelaide and went 1-0 up. Hammond got one as well, just to continue with that symmetry. So his cap number was 227. KP played 227 test innings and both of them got a 227. Uh, in the case of Hammond, it was against New Zealand in that wild series of 1932-33 where he broke Bradman's mm-hmm. record and made, made his 336. And what his average for the series was... 270 or something absurd. I know you've done, I reckon you've done that before on, on Storytime, Jeff. Yep. But yeah, but there are so many great names here and Claire's given us the latitude. I don't want to blow this one. So instead of going for the most well-known name, I want to find the most unusual 227 story. So let's rule out a whole swathe of big dogs and other recognisable names straight away. 
Shrewsbury, Shrewsbury rather, Peter May, Mickey Stewart, Graham Hick, Chris Broad, James Hillsworth. He'd love to be in that company. Herbert Sutcliffe, Hammond again, George Headley, Lawrence Rowe, Basil de Oliveira, Peter Willey, David Boone comes up later in the show. Graham Gooch, Vinod Cumbly against Zimbabwe. He's one big test effort. Steve James, great man. Uh, Peterson, Truscothic, Guptal, Denley, Godwoman, another one who would love to be in this list. Even Charlie Hallows, who we went into some detail about. Uh, about his um, thousand runs before the end of May in 1928, he got one mm. in 1921, just before his test debut. Let me guess: Guptills was against Bangladesh or Zimbabwe, one of the two. <laughs> That's a bit harsh, but probably. Uh, so from here, <laughs> he just had he had an, an incredible inverted record yeah. where it was like the lower ranked the team, the higher his average against them was, um, and it, 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 the lowest was definitely Australia. Um, where he averaged about 11 against them, I think, and then went up to averaging about 250 against uh, the Bangers. Uh, from from here, I thought, well, what about the fewest first-class games to have then made 227? That's not a bad measure of obscurity, right? You know, like um, guys that have had a, a brief stint but somehow had one big day out. I- I'm ruling out Jay Gohill as part of that. He's only played a handful of first-class games for Sarastra, where Jiteshwa Pajara plays, who we interviewed a few weeks ago, but that was on first-class debut last year because Chiteshwa Pajara, his hero, was on India duty. So there's a 22-year-old there to keep an eye on who's in that slipstream of, um, of, of Pajara. His name's Jay Gohill. Then I wound it back to pretty much two names, the two who had the the most uh, well, the least substantial careers from a first-class perspective. One's Tom Marsden, but that's like way back when there wasn't actually that much first-class cricket. So I, I, I drew a line through that as well. And I landed instead on a bloke by the name of Norman Frank Druce, or Frank Druce as he's known. And part of the reason that I picked him was that he was born in Denmark Hill. Mm. And Denmark Hill is the railway station that we get off at when we go and watch Dulwich Hamlet play. And lots of final word people now come along and watch Dulwich Hamlet with me. So that felt oh. right. And he met all the other criteria because he didn't play too much first-class cricket, Jeff. I reckon it's a bit of an insult to Denmark, you know, a, a proud kingdom, uh, birthplace of Hamlet. Um, that's where, I mean, all, all the Beowulf stuff happens in Denmark, doesn't it? Mm. Like uh, proud tradition of warriors going to sea, you know, spearing people, all the shit they used to do. And you're like, yeah, let's give them a hill. Let's name a hill after them in a bit of London. Like surely, come on, Denmark deserves a little bit more respect than that. Yeah, let's give them a hill where the property prices are extraordinary. Uh, Anyway, Mm. so that's my inspiration. If he were a little bit younger, I'd probably uh, just realise that 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 would make that would make Hamlet the king of the hill. Yeah, and it's known as well. Not far from Denmark Hill is Champion Hill, and Champion Hill's where Dulwich Hamlet Football Club (laughs) is. True story. That would be a great thing to call somebody, if you, you know, just to expand the, the champion universe. Because I know that a few years ago we were going with, you know, um, nice one Champions League, uh, yeah. Champions Trophy, etc. Champs Elysees, and so on. If you could <laughs> Champion Hill, good work, Champion Hill. Uh, right. So if, yeah, it, sorry, I was going to say if if uh, if our man Frank here was a little bit younger, what I mean to say is if he's a bit older, no. Younger, mm. younger, not older. I'd have DC hit the music here as well. This is like Daylight Savings. We yeah, do I'm this struggling. every time Daylight <laughs> Savings changes. Adam's like, hang on, hang on. Which way are we going? We, we going if we're going, we're going forward, we're going back. If we're going forward, does that mean it's less time or it's more time? What, what time is it where you are? We have to do this twice a year. So we have say. to do this four times a year because we have Australia and England going at different times. My God, it's confusing the it's different a, time zones we operate on. Yeah, it's an insight to our relationship, our working relationship that I just defer to you now. I put what it is in my time zone. 
zone and you could fucking work it out pretty much when, you know, I've got no clue. Um, I know spring forward, fall back, it still means nothing to me. My brain doesn't, you know, doesn't do this thing. No. All I know it for is that you get one less hour out on the piss in October when the clock's changed in Australia. The Rochi was shut at two, not three. Um, that's my only sort of mm. reference point in all of this from when I was a younger lad. Anyway, Frank's born in 1875. He goes to boarding school at Marlborough, goes on to Cambridge, a well-worn path in 1893. In 1895, he scores 786 runs for the university at 56. Um, and out of that, our posh friend here, Frank, um, gets picked for the gents to play the players. How's this? Mm. His gents versus players game is captained by Billy Murdoch. So Billy Murdoch not only kind oh. of absorbed himself within the English cricketing establishment, you know, he fucking led the gents against the players. You know, he led the side that was the the definition of aristocracy, I suppose, in, in that era. It's kind of what like Bob Menzies tried to do, isn't it? Like where, where he went to the United Kingdom during the war and tried to become the prime minister. There's something in this too with Billy Murdoch and what he went on to do in England with cricket. Anyway, out the back of that game where he made a couple of starts, he got a few matches with Surrey late in the season of 1895, but he only made 111 mm. runs in 10 innings. So he's nowhere near it. Like he really Ooh. is nowhere near the mark. Good for his university, but even there, there's a gap between university cricket and the cricket that's being played in the championship. But then at the end of the season... That's, I, that's your classic posh cricketer, though, yeah, isn't it? You no, know, quite. Uh, you, you came from... You, the, I'm sorry, you have to pronounce it more, bro. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and you, you've got to have a triple-barreled name at the end. And then you're supposed to average eight while you bat at nine because you're shit-ass, but you're posh, so you're in the team. So and I thought we should go on a little bit of version here, Jeff, because at the end of that season, he's taken to the USA with F. Mitchell's 11, also called Frank. A Cambridge lad too, but three years his senior. He was born in, in 1872, Frank Mitchell. And, you know, he would have only been a lad too. He was he was a Yorkshire gun. He went on to play cricket and rugby for England, one of those in that category who enjoyed international careers in both, which are quite a few of around this era. Yeah. But a quick scan, it looks like his story's a pretty good yarn as well. So maybe another day. If you want to send us a nerd pledge about Frank Mitchell, I wouldn't mind finding out more about his story. Anyway, on this tour of America in September 1895, he plays games against all New York, one against the Canadian national team. Don't know if John Davison was bowling off breaks that day. But the two that had first-class status, Jeff, were against, of course, the gents of Philadelphia. Why not? If you go to America, oh. if you go to America in the, in, the, in the 1890s or the early 1900s, you've got to play the gents of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And, play the gents. And if you're going to play the gents, who's going to be playing? Barking. Thought that was for you, that's for you to jump in. I knew you knew the answer. Bart King. So our guy, the original Frank, Frank Drews, does okay. Uh, he makes 30 and 57. He actually top scores in the second innings. It's a thrilling game and they win the English kids that are playing for this Mitchell 11 by two wickets and uh, a, a large slab of that's by the guy we're featuring today. But Bart King takes seven for 55 in the first innings uh, and two for 80 in the second. So, yeah, kind of remarkable that the, um, the Cambridge lads won that game against the Gents of Philadelphia. Mm. Um, the Gents of Philadelphia won the other game by an innings. Drews is out to King both times, and King takes 11 wickets for the match, as he always seemed to do. So uh, in two first-class fixtures against um, F. Mitchell's 11, Bart King took 20 wickets at about eight or something like that. So uh, after this tour, after we've had this diversion, 1896, mm. back to the Cambridge games, right? He makes 526 runs at 33 with one century. Doesn't play for Surrey at all that year. Just the university season. That doesn't strike me as unusual. You know, 526 at 33, good on you. Fair fucks. But 1897, 
on the back of two pretty solid seasons, he's made captain. Now, as we know from Tom Hicks when he um, came on the show a few weeks ago, being captain of an Oxbridge team, Oxford or Cambridge, meant quite a bit you know, for yeah. another 100 years after this. And that's where he played his best cricket. He averaged 66 as captain in 1897 for Cambridge with three centuries, including his 227 not out. It was in May against another touring team, the Charles Thornton 11. Now, this bloke really got around, Charles Thornton. He played first-class cricket for 22 teams. He was like the Dirk Nannis of his time, but, you know, in multi-day cricket, not in T20 cricket. And... Charles Thornton also started the Scarborough Festival, which runs on to this very day. Oh. Uh, so he, he, he left a bit of a legacy, including taking teams around to Cambridge where he, he was a member of the alma mater. Anyway, Cambridge made 169. Thornton's team made 132. Games in the balance. Then Druce, the captain, walks in and makes 227 not out. The next highest score in the entire match was 40. It was the highest score ever at Fenners, which remains Cambridge's home ground. I've played a game there. It's a beautiful place to play. 227 not out was the highest score. So it caused a bit of a splash. This century wasn't even a uni game, plus two more, mm. plus four first-class games at the end of the season, including one for North versus South, where he made 30 – this is after the uni season, right? So Surrey plus North versus South. He makes 32, mm. 11, 46, 3. 32, 15, and 12, right? Shit house. Much as it was. He gets picked for England on the back of that. You better fucking believe he gets picked for England. He gets taken to Australia. (laughs) He gets taken to Australia (laughs) for the Ashes of 1897, 1898. He's made a member. Anybody could get a gig. <laughs> Anyone could get a gig in those days. Literally, you go out in the lunch break, you pull your pants down, do a handstand and fart, and they'd be like, get him on the ship. Incredible effort. Incredible. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, the way it's written up now, the way his like, obituary reads and so on, they link it back to the 227. But, I mean, he got multiple, yeah. as I said, four first-class games at the end of the uni season. He sticks it up just as he did two years earlier for Surrey and they, they make him a member of the Wisdom Five. So he's a Wisdom Almanac Cricketer of the Year in 1898 and he gets to Australia for the Ashes. Now, I know it was uh, I, I know and I appreciate that they picked players for the Australia trips in a different way back then. Yeah, effectively needed to be an amateur. Most of them are amateurs. You know, it was a... It was an unusual setup and, and so on, but in this case, it kind of takes it to a whole, whole other level. He was known as an onside player, not particularly conventional, and they thought that would work on the flat, true tracks of Australia. And to be honest with you, it kind of does. I mean, A.E. Stoddart is the captain of this team, but this is the tour where, and we've right. talked about this before, where Stoddy's mum dies and he barely plays. So Archie McLaren looks after the team for the most part, and Drews is in the first team. He's in the side that play from the get-go at Sydney. They win the first test there, actually, thanks to 175 by Ranjasinghe, which is seen as one of his best ever innings. But from that point forward, mm-hmm. Australia steamroll them and win 4-1. But Drews, you know, in those circumstances of being destroyed 4-1, I think three of them are buying innings, does pretty well. He's quite consistent. He made it to at least 15 in all nine test innings, 252 runs at an average of 28, including... 64 in the final test back at Sydney. Also got a two-a-game century, a first-class 100 against New South Wales. But that's him done. So having made the national team, Mm -hmm. because he finished university, he just kind of said, that's it for me. He played five other first-class games between 1902 
and World War One. All of them are broadly speaking for Cambridge old boys and stuff like that. Only five games, got one other century, but never again for Surrey, never again for England. He had you know one serious game in Australia where he makes a Test fifty. Mm-hmm. You know, then into the business world he 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 leaves cricket for with nine first class centuries. Few stories across that uh, and this defender's record at the time of two hundred and twenty seven not out cap one oh seven for England. And most unlikely uh, cap member, Frank Druce, shall we say, Jeff, a man of his time. I reckon he could have played every fixture between that test series and World War One, and he still wouldn't have made another first class. <laughs> <laughs> you made the right call, Frank. Get out of there while you're... Very vaguely ahead, and thanks, and thanks as well, to, and thanks as well to Claire for setting it up that way. I mean, I know we said this from time to time on the show, but um, you know, it, it, when, in this case, Claire McQuillan saying, "Just tell me a story." You may have another reason for submitting two twenty-seven, and we have ample time for the revisits. But you know, we can you know, free the arms and, and play some shots, and that's what we like yep. to do on this show. This is Jeremy Coney, and I'm on the final word. Well, I'm doing a little bit of freeing the arms with this next one because uh, it doesn't have a clue attached as far as I can tell. It's from Daniel Carney. It could be a Julio pledge. I don't know. I just looked at it. It was $3 USD and I thought $3 is not $2 and it's not $5. Mm, mm. So it feels like there's probably some reason to that. Um, I don't know. Maybe $3 was the price of a cup of coffee. Remember how they always used to, to get you to sign up for things? They'd be like, and, and then it just it got extrapolated for the price of seven and a half coffees a month. You know, <laughs> it's like, why are we measuring things in? It's like the uh, um, David McGann's worlds, you know, measuring things in terms of distances to the moon and back. Yeah, like, like how they, we, we used to- the money that's been spent on the, on the space program could have bought enough bread to tra- travel to the moon and back seven and a half times. Do- However, the bread would not have been able to be taken to the moon because of the lack of rockets, <laughs> the money for which was instead spent on the purchase of the bread. We, we, we had a, we had a long standing habit of doing that in, in federal politics. So the one that they used okay. in opposition was how many times they could have gone to the moon and back with Howard's flights between Canberra and Sydney, where he decided to live at Kirribilli House instead of the lodge. Mm-hmm. That was a fun one. And then in government, whenever we had a climate change program, like, you know, Pink Bats being an example of that, I know that, that I know these days that that's seen a different way. But when it was announced, it was, a, you know, it was a climate mitigation scheme in addition to, or a carbon mitigation scheme in addition to being a, a stimulus measure. And um, I think we worked out that it was taking the equivalent of 20 million cars off the road across 40 years or something like that. And the other one is how many times can it fill the MCG, be it with water oh, or with human MCG. beings? You know, how, mu- how much water does it constitute? <laughs> <laughs> you know, how many MCGs in the Pacific Ocean kind of thing? Or how many people mm-hmm. are in there and how many times does that fill the MCG, which is one we still use yeah, occasionally. Or- if you fill it with water and then fill it with people, you'd have a big public pool and they'd all splash around and have a nice time. Um, so so maybe we need to be more creative. Anyway, Daniel Carney's number is $3 flat, which means it's 300. I can interpret that in any way I want. If I interpret that as 30, I did look up. I, I wondered who, um, which, which players might have a test average. I could have looked at other formats, but I like test cricket. 
of exactly 30 in either discipline. So there are quite a few test batters who average exactly 30, but they've made 30 runs or 60 runs or 90 right, runs, right. So sort of predictable amounts. A couple of anomalies, though. Curtis Kampfer, one of your favourites mm. for Ireland, has made 240 runs in eight innings so far in his test career, all of which dismissed, meaning he still averages exactly 30, which is nice and neat. Um, and the grandfather of them all, Azar Mahmood, who was always one of my favourites, the Pakistani all-rounder, with the big ears looking like he was going to take off as he ran into bowl in the late 90s and, and early 2000s. He was the um, he was the not-so-good Abdul Razak, who was the other Pakistani all-rounder at the time. He made 900 runs exactly in 34 innings, but was not out four times. So 900 oh. divided by 30. He's got exactly 30 after, after that many, which is pretty good. Um, Sarah Louise Illingworth, who was born in England, played test cricket for New Zealand, batted seven times, not out three times. 120 test runs, averages 30. So some, some pretty good numbers in there. And then with the bowlers, Arshad Khan was a Pakistani off-spinner who started his career in the late 90s, bowled in 17 test innings, took 32 wickets, conceding 960 runs, averaging exactly 30. It's pretty good from mm. 17 bowling innings. Um, and then George Hurst, the, uh, the grandfather of this particular statistical category, Bowled from 1897 to 1909 in Test cricket across 44 innings, taking 59 wickets, conceding 1,770 runs, 30.00. So enjoyed those bits. But I thought on this show, if you say 300 on this show, it pretty much means one thing, Adam. Um, it means Titch Freeman <laughs> taking 300 wickets in a first-class season. Absolutely. One, one of the more staggering numbers in, in all of cricket, I think. Which happened in 1928, and you did the long Titch Freeman story maybe a year and a half ago when we started getting really interested in the diminutive leg spinner from Kent. I think we did it in. I reckon I can. I reckon we were sat in Hawthorne when I was staying there for a month or two around that time, and I didn't want to go back to England when it was Plague Island and stayed a bit longer in Australia. And remember that? Remember that time we did multiple podcasts in that living room. Oh yeah, I feel like one of those was was that. So we're going back to yeah, early 21 during the. Um, India-England test series. The India-England series? Yeah, we were doing daily yeah. shows from in there and, and that kind of thing. And 1928, that, that's the that's the um, the Charlie Hallows um, uh, summer as well. So, uh, yes, we're, we're back to that mm. year. Um, it's, um, it's gravitational pull on us at the moment. Well, there were a lot of runs and a lot of wickets. I think that means that this year must have had good weather because – he didn't miss that many innings. Uh, so, he, yeah, he played a shitload of matches, 37 matches right. to take the 304 wickets, which is which is a lot. It still means you have to take 8.2 wickets per match, right. which, which is not snoozing if you're doing that across the season. But it was interesting that in those 37 matches, I because, yes, I went and looked at them all, um, I only found five where he didn't bowl twice. You know, whereas normally you'd think in an English season you'd have quite a lot of they're, – they're almost all three-day matches. Yeah. All of the counting matches were three days at that time. So you had to take 8.2 per match and you only got three days to do it in. And often players in those days, you'd have a couple of days to be washed out or whatever it is or a team at bat for two days and you'd only bowl once. And, um, so he did get the opportunity to bowl twice a lot and he took uh, 10 wickets or more in a match a lot of times. We'll come to that in just a second. So – yeah, three-day county games. He plays three test matches against the West Indies. He plays two other matches for Kent, one for Kent and one for an England eleven, also against West Indies, who are touring for the first time, aren't they, in 28? Yep. Um, that 
particular season. So he plays five first-class matches, three of which are tests against them, takes six wickets in an innings a lot of times. That seems to be his favourite number, but takes nine for 104 against the Windies in one of those tour games, takes five wickets in an innings 36 times. <laughs> what did you say? 30, 36 in, times. In 37 matches, took 36 fifers. Yes. Fucking hell. Yep. Half the wickets. Yeah, yep. and and yeah, and bowled once in five of those matches. So, which is which is extraordinary. Fifteen of those matches are ten wickets or more. So uh, I'm pretty sure that from what when I was scanning through, the best in the match was fifteen wickets in a match against Leicestershire. So bowls nearly twelve thousand deliveries across that summer. Four hundred and twenty-five maiden overs in that season, and in the tests he takes six wickets at Lords, ten wickets in the match at Manchester, six at the Oval, so twenty-two at thirteen for the series. And then in nineteen thirty-three, nearly does it again. Mm. Gets up to two hundred and ninety-eight wickets in nineteen thirty-three, so nearly gets the three hundred a second time. Obviously, didn't want it enough. Titch Freeman, and, and while I was looking him up, I found there's a book about Titch Freeman, which I have not read, but I would like to read, called Titch Freeman and the Decline of the Leg Break Bowler by a writer called David Lemon. He's mm. a double M Lemon, but there is still, you know, um, there there may be an affinity there. What was David Lemon up to? Not familiar with his work, but it's got two reviews on the giant wholesaler website. It it's about 150 bucks to get hold of a copy. So if somebody wants to buy me a copy of Titch Freeman and The Decline of the League Break Bowler, feel free. Janet Martin in the review says, great book. That's it. That's her review. Great book. Thank you, Janet. Really contributing there. There is a website I found where it's available in New Zealand for 40 New Zealand dollars. So maybe if, you know, if Alex Brown has a contact in, in <laughs> uh, the land of the long white cloud, you can get me a, a cut price copy sent over. Daniel Carney. That had to be your 300 because I had nothing else to go on, and that is what 300 means on the final word. It means the four-foot-two leg-break bowler from Kent who took a million wickets. To take a titch, I remember I first kind of heard of Titch Freeman in long form was when Kerry O'Keefe told a story about him um, on the radio. I don't know, it would have been more than 20 years ago now, saying that when you took five for a lot, and then that kind of makes sense too, doesn't it? He bowled half mm. the overs, you know. Five for a lot, it was known as a titch in county cricket around that time and it's something that he used to say as yeah. well. Right, so two good numbers to start. The next one is 580 from Donald Vaughan. You mentioned New Zealand. This is in NZD. Uh, he's a new pledger and he's left a clue for me, Donald, and that's going to be read out by you, Jeff. Donald says this, a proud moment for the Oz brothers, that is spelt O-Z, mm. so it could mean the prison TV show, <laughs> it could mean the land where the wizard lives, it could mean Frank Oz, uh, it could mean a lot of things. He says, a rare achievement in a lost cause in a tricky era. Okay, Donald, well, I'm going to deal with most of the clue and I'm going to pretend that you don't say a lost cause in a tricky era. Or, no, I'm going to pretend you say lost cause because, um, well, maybe this is a lost cause in, in a certain way of interpreting it. The Oz Brothers, spelled mm. O-Z, can only mean one thing. That's the late show, Jeff. That's that's early to mid-'90s canon. Oh. Um, Santo Chilaro yep. and Rob Sitch looking to Launceston and worshipping Booney. As I remember it anyway, forever devastated that he wasn't made Australian of the Year. Mm. It was a memorable segment with the two pop bellies they had and, you know, you often see these clips re-emerge yep. on, on social media. Didn't we, we – we had a nerd pledge from Matthew Jones years ago, didn't we, that, were, that related to the late show David Boone bit? Yeah, we did. We did, didn't we? I can't remember how Matt got to it, but I'm pretty confident this is where we're going with it again. Now – Part of the reason they treated Booney with such reverence, these two characters, because it was because of the flight to, to London in 1989, the famous flight. And this is there is some chance this is what Donald's talking about. Here's why. 
For a long time, it was actually reported that he drank 58 cans, not 52. The cans of EB that he drank between mm-hmm. Sydney and London on this much longer flight than what it is these days. I think they stopped for several hours in Singapore, which was the custom in, in that time. Now, ordinarily, I wouldn't do a story like this. It's not relevant to cricket and not encouraging binge drinking, but there's actually a lot more to it than I remembered and they're new for that matter. And I thought it was worth just adding to this. So Ian Chappell's quote at the time is an absolute belter. It's classic Chappelle in my day. 58 beers between Sydney and London would have had you virtually classified as a teetotaler, which is so Chappelle, which is the most Chappelle thing you can imagine him saying. He had his, um, Chappelle had his 80th birthday the other week. He had it at a restaurant in Sydney and, and Jim Maxwell went along and sent me some lovely photos and videos from it. Jim spoke of it actually and a number of other people did as well. But like it's, you know, it's sort of, 30 people sat around a long table and exchanging yarns and I can hear in the backdrop, I'm not sure who's saying it, but someone's saying, oh, that was in the 74, 75 Ashes. Like I love the fact that, you know, at Chappelle's, uh, you know, 80th birthday that there is someone around that table still telling tall stories about a series from, you know, the better mm-hmm. part of five decades ago. Anyway, that's Chappelle's take on 58 beers, as it was for a long time reported. This happened on the 30th of April, 1989. And my sense, now I've learned more about it, my sense is, is there is a reason why David Boone never engages with this. His only real public commentary mm. is when he said, never spoke about it, never will. And if people haven't got something else to talk about, then they've led a fucking boring life. And that's what he said in 2006 when it was put to him there. Although he did do a promotion, Jeff, for VB where this was, remember the talking, was it the talking Booney or something around, yeah. around the VB Dull, series? Yeah, it was like a... There was a doll that would sit on top of your television and be sent a little signal during the ad break and then would speak to you, which <laughs> sounds like something that's haunted, you know. Um, and the, even worse, there was an Ian Botham one. Like, do I want the ghost of Ian Botham in my house? I do not. It is not a thing that I want to happen. We had a drink dispenser in Canberra that was the head of Bob Hawke, a red drink dispenser, and it actually said on the bottom of it, the Lizard of Oz, which ended up being a, a, a nickname that was linked to Paul Keating after he had the audacity mm. to put his hand on the back of the Queen when walking about Balmoral in 1993. This is well before 93. And, yeah, it's it's Bob Hawke's head with, like, the out of the mouth is where you would pour the drinks, kind of like you would out of a, out of a goon bag, that same kind Ooh. of design. And, um, yeah, that used to live at my best mate Ben's house for many years through our years wow. in politics. I don't know how on earth I, I, I got it from somewhere, maybe eBay or whatever. Anyway, what are we talking about? Uh, drinks and Booney, 89. <laughs> right, so – How's this? The captain of the flight congratulated Booney as they were landing for breaking the record. Like they got on, you're about to land in London at six degrees, and congratulations, David Boone. He's he's knocked off the record, uh, which was allegedly 45 beers, which was set by Rod Marsh in 1983 on the way to the World Cup, which overtook uh, Dougie Walters 44 on the way back from the Caribbean in 1973. I wonder how they measured that, right? Yeah, 70 at 40. The the Caribbean London flight, maybe they were the same length, which is why Mm. the two records stand side by side. Anyway, this was all, yeah. I get why people would go, oh, come on, come on, seriously. How have you counted that? How have you measured that? I reckon you can trust Jeff Lawson. Uh, Henry doesn't drink and he documented the whole thing on the back of sick bags, which he later said, I wish I kept them. They would have been worth a lot of money appropriately. So someone on the trip, can't remember who it was, someone did throw up when trying to keep up with Booney. Dean Jones did the first 25 with him on the way to Singapore. Then they made a makeshift bed for Dino in the plane and stuck him in there for the rest of the flight because he was gone and others took turns. I think Mark Taylor was another um, with him 
as he made his way to London. Dino was told like to- Like the pace, is this like the safety car yeah, on the track? Yeah, like, that's right. Of, yeah. Dino was told by his old man, Barney, who was his coach as well, wasn't he? Um, the, the domestique, if you will, yeah, yeah. like a, a more, more, it's probably the more appropriate analogy <laughs> for the, you know, to do the different chunks of the Tour de France stage. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and his old man, Dino's old man said, sit with someone who spent time in England before. So Dino sat with Booney in theory to get advice on playing in England. And he was quoted later by saying, I've got plenty of advice through the 25 years with, with Booney. But anyway, when they get off the plane, Merv gets on the phone to a radio station. They are all told to shut up. Don't talk about this. Predictably, Merv got on the phone to a radio station and immediately said that David Boone has struck the first 50 of the tour, told a variation of the story and got in a huge amount of trouble. Merv thought he was going to be sent home for breaking team rules. Bob Simpson, you know, was a pretty strict taskmaster. So Merv was shitting mm-hmm. himself. Then Booney was put on probation and fined $5,000 by the team for doing it. So the suggestion is that Bob Simpson didn't know what was going on. And when he got word of it, he was furious. So I think that's why now Booney's not quite so keen on the yarn. You know, it's his legend and so on. But he did get in a fair bit of strife. And now he went to sleep it off. I think that also related to the fact that he missed a couple of training sessions. So the probation and the fine was all intertwined to what he did on the flight. Five grand's fair whack back in 89 when they're earning – not that much money. Oh yeah, to you know, like different era. Could have bought a house with that. <laughs> Could have um, set up your negative gearing empire by <laughs> getting yourself a three bedroom in, I don't know, in uh, in Broadmeadows or something for five grand at that point. Anyway, so that's where the keg on legs reputation started for Boone, and then the Oz brothers took it and ran with it. Boone, for what it's worth, did average fifty five in that series and hit the winning runs to secure the Ashes for the first time in England since nineteen thirty four. So you know. So, you know, he, he, he did a bit with the mm. bat, but um, yes, it, it was what he did on the flight. And 58, 580, I'm going with that because of the Oz Brothers reference and the Ian Chappell quote and the fact that it was misreported as 58 for a long time. The bit that doesn't work mm. is the lost cause because how could you define any of that as a lost cause for Boone? But still, we're having a day where we're telling stories that we feel like Donald and we will happily tell another for you in the revisits. Yes, let us know. Let us know. I think that sounds good. I think the numbers work up, the numbers add up. Maybe maybe the lost cause was because it was misreported and it wasn't 58 yep. and it was in fact 52 and, and maybe in some versions of the story that doesn't break the record. I don't know. <laughs> um, just just spitballing here at this point. Let us know, Donald. We've got, uh, I've got one more and you've got one more after that. Richard Johnson is the next up with $6.82 in Australian dollary dues. Okay. Uh, this might come out around the time of the one-day World Cup spot on, Richard, and it has to do with, in my biased opinion, the greatest one-day international ever played. Probably not, but definitely my favourite. I think there would be a good chance one or both of you may have attended the game. Hmm. Interesting. I'm just cracking my neck and cracking my knuckles. 682. Okay, so it's not going to be a 6482. I would love no. to see a bowler take 6482 in a one-day international. <laughs> that would be an extraordinary – it's not impossible, but it would be hard. Um, maybe more likely in, in this sort of era where a bowler going for 80 does happen more often than maybe it once yeah, did. I'd like to know what the what the most expensive five-wicket bag is in one-day cricket. Like, I'm tipping that mm. – I mean – yeah, it won't be 82, but there might be like a five for 70 out there or something like that. And you're right. There'll be more of those now that we're, you know, well, I don't know, is scoring in one day cricket reached its peak then now sort of steadying down into something of a plateau. Anyway, either way, that's, that's now of interest mm. to me. So uh, six for 82 in test matches, plenty of times. Well, not plenty, but there are a few Nathan Lyon in Murpur. You would remember that one. 
um, yep. on that Bangladesh tour in 2017. Yep, I, I remember that well, uh, where Lyon had his best ever series in Asia. But uh, never been done in men's or women's ODIs. ODI number 682, the 682nd one-day international played, is a good one. It's one of the 35 matches to have been decided by one run mm. when Pakistan took on the Windies. When is it? It's back in 1991. Pakistan make 236. Rami is Raja, commentates his own 90. Imran Khan, who's currently kicking back in prison in Pakistan. We should should look into that story at some point on the show, I think. He makes 77, batting at number five, could do it all at that point in time. Curtly Ambrose takes five for 53, which was probably considered expensive in those days. And then Richie Richardson, who's here, actually, I think he's uh, where? Where am I? I'm in Bangalore. Yeah, he's 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 match refing the game tomorrow. Richie Rich makes 122 at a runner ball, scintillating innings, but he's out 26 runs short of the target. Wacko Yunus gets him. Jeff Dujon on 53 is run out six runs later. Poor old Ian Bishop seems to be the case with uh, with his career. A lot of the time ends up trying to save the game with the bat, does his best, but Ambrose, Walsh, Patterson make one run between them. Wasim and Wakar clean them up the tail. Wakar four for 39 by the end of the game when he bowls Ian Bishop with one run short of victory, two short of the tie, three short of a win. But that game was not in Australia, and you and I were both in the early years of primary school in 1991, <laughs> so we were not there. Um, so I looked instead, Adam, at a match aggregate of 682, and this is very promising because both of us could have been at both of the games that have a match aggregate of 682. I was at one of them, which was November 2020 in Sydney when – so it had been, they'd been locked down in Melbourne over the winter. I had moved to Queensland That's right. in order to be able to work. Are you still a, um, are you still technically a Queensland all... citizen after all that? You had to sign a state yeah, deck or so. something. I, I, yeah, yeah. I, had to, I think my, um, I mean, I'm so, I'm not even in Australia that much of the time, but I'm pretty sure I still have a Queensland address. So yeah, so I, I was there. And then because I was there, I was able to go down to Sydney in sort of November or whatever it was after covering the Australian Women's Series up in Brisbane. And so I was I was doing the WBBL season for ABC Radio is what was happening that year. And so Australia played India in a series that was mostly, I think it was all at Canberra and the SCG, I reckon. I think the one days were played at the SCG. This was the series where uh, Steve Smith made consecutive 60-ball centuries. I remember that because yeah. I was in hotel quarantine in Perth when you were in Sydney. Pretty much throughout that series, that was my oh, that was my yeah, fortnight. Yeah, you were you were on the way over, weren't you? Yeah, I, I can't remember the exact sequence, but I know there were certainly games of international cricket played where occasionally I was doing like the OBO from hotel quarantine with Winnie, roughly the same size as Peggy is now. The early crawling months—that's a nice part mm. of my life right now. Peggy is just amazing right now. She's just crawling around like a maniac, eating everything put in front of her. So it's a, I have similar memories of Winnie being around that size when, you know, big smiles and clapping at you and waving at you and, and loving life. And we had those two weeks, which were weird and horrible for being locked up, but it did mean that we could yep. spend all of our time with our infant, which was, you know, cute, all those types of things. I've just looked up. So the most expensive five for in ODR cricket is Adil Rashid, five for 85 oh, wow. in that game against the Windies in 2019 when remember, oh, the, Chris and the Windies nearly chased it. Yeah, where Chris yeah. Gale hits. Uh, that's the game where the most uh, the most number of sixes ever in a one day was struck. Like England hit, let's call it 21, and the Windies surpassed it and Gale hit a century and they fell just short. 
That, that's when. That's probably when one day cricket was at its high scoring when England was just going ballistic every single time and teams had to, to go with them to the extent they could before that World Cup and scores were suppressed a bit in England. But um, yeah, I don't think we've got quite to that level again since. Yeah, uh, I think you're right. It's um, It has gone a, a different way. But right, so where are we? So we're, we're, we're at Sydney. Uh, they're playing India. Aaron Finch makes 114 in even time. Steve Smith makes that incredible 105 from a 66 when he was just blazing it. And Glenn Maxwell comes in against India's spinners and makes 45 from 19 at the end. You remember him reversing and switch hitting. Yuzvendra Chahal, mostly, I think, who took one for 89. Navdeep Saini at one for 83. Australia made 374. Mm-hmm. India made 308 in reply. Hardik Pandya, 90 off 74 balls, hits four sixes. Zampa takes four for 54, which is what they want more of from him through this World Cup. So that's one game. Would it be somebody's favourite game? I don't know about that. Yeah, I, th- I think that was when Hardik Pandya doesn't get them over the line then, but does so in the next one day, which is very similar. Like they're chasing... You know, near enough to three fifty, and he does get them over with a with a similar score to that ninety mm. from seventy four. So it's funny the cricket that sticks with you and the cricket that doesn't. Like you know, I think because a one day series between Australia and India, you know, I can I would imagine there are entire series where you or I couldn't tell you one thing about them in the last five or six years. But because this was played in mm. those unusual circumstances, we were starved of cricket. Remember a little bit more. Yeah, and and Jadeja had a, an amazing series in the more in the twenty over games, yep. wasn't it? That did some amazing things with the bat. So, was there one that was a closer result? Yes, there was, and it's one that we covered, but we weren't at Adam Trent Bridge, two thousand and nineteen during the World Cup, early in the World Cup. I reckon it's game five, maybe or day five of the World Cup. So, we went to England, South Africa, which was the opener on the Thursday in London. Yep. We went down to Bristol for Australia-Afghanistan on the Saturday. Yep. We came back to London for Bangladesh-South Africa at, in London on the Sunday when Bangladesh knocked off the South Africans and chased 330 or whatever what a, it was. What a great day that was, yep. Mm-hmm. And on Monday morning we had to do that show that we did for Yahoo mm. Sport, which meant that we had to be at a recording studio at 7 a.m., which meant that we had to get up at like 5.30 in the morning and go in and record this thing. And this game was starting in Nottingham at 10.30 a.m. So uh, we couldn't get there. Otherwise is this, is this, is this England-Pakistan? It is. Yep. Ding, 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 ding. So we, uh, as they say in the industry, you did it off tube, which means we watched television. Um, sometimes you can just say the word that means the thing. And it was a cracker of a game. Pakistan, 348 for eight, monster score. Barbar Azam makes 66. Uh, the professor, Mohammed Hafiz, makes 84. Safra Ahmed 55. And they keep swinging. Hassan Ali and Shadab Khan. Shadab Khan batting at 10 in this game, mm. which I forgot about, who smash a few right at the end. They just keep going all the way through. And then England, this is the thing that they've been bred to do over the last four years, which is pin your ears back and go for it. And so they do. They do exactly that, even though they lose some players for low scores. Jason Roy, Owen Morgan, Ben Stokes don't make any best. O makes 32. But Joe Root makes 107 from 104, and then Butler comes out and makes 103 from 76 balls. And it looks like they're going to do it, right? Even when Root gets out, he slices a ball to short third, but Butler's still going. And there's a point where they need 61 from 34 balls with Butler and Moen Ali batting together. And you're like, well, they're going to do this. You know, the way that England play, they will they will make this here. And then it's Mohamed Ami, I remember him, who picks up the wicket, the movement away. I think he's a is he does he come around the wicket? I'm trying to I'm trying to picture it. I can see the catch in my mind. I remember it was it was so prominent. And 
Butler again, like Root did, finds short third. He's out. He's made his 100. Uh, Chris Wokes comes out and hits a six. They need 29 from 14 at that stage. And then Wahab Riaz gets Moen Ali and Chris Wokes in consecutive balls with the short ball. Slower bouncer, then a quick bouncer, gets them both caught, and then takes a catch off Archer off the bowling of Amir in the next over, which is the second last over, which only goes for four, so four runs at a wicket. Means they need 25 off the last over. Mark Wood and Adil Rashid, there he is again, have some big swings, um, but they are short by 14 runs. Could almost have got there, didn't quite get there. It is a bloody good one-day international um, and, you know, a couple more connections in that last over and, and it could have been down to, you know, single digits like the one that we were talking about with Pakistan. And the Windies. Um, so that could be that could be a favourite game for Richard Johnson. Might have been one he particularly enjoyed. There were 682 runs scored in the match, and that's your number. Yeah, cracking game. I remember England not being too worried about it afterwards. They were like, yeah, we didn't get the runs, but that'll happen. And they were quite phlegmatic about the whole thing. The crisis came later when they lost to Sri Lanka and Australia in, in consecutive games and had to run the table thereafter and, and duly did. For you and I, just to be indulgent again, we were we were recording that. We watched it in the press box, the, um, the, the oval press box, the last – maybe 10 or 12 or 20 overs or whatever it worked out to be. I was off interviewing Andy Flower at Guildford that day, which was a, a great experience and indeed something I'm keen to re-release. It was um, quite an emotional interview about Zimbabwe and the 99 World Cup for a different show I was making at the time. And um, you're coming back and joining you and tapping back in and catching up and, and um, yeah, sitting outside. That's before we videoed our daily shows. So we used to do, you know, we'd sit wherever we were, I mean, we recorded some of those shows in ridiculous circumstances, one time in mm. particular that we probably shouldn't talk about because it was a little bit illegal. But, you know, there were – we just had to be where we were. Where we were. It was that kind of World Cup, yeah. part of the excitement, part of the fun. That was the vibe. That was the vibe, that, yeah. And, and that, was the, that, that was the point. Yeah. Where are we? We'll do it. We'll do it on the hoof, on the road, as it, as it comes. That's right. That's right. So, um, yeah, good, good memories of uh, a really fun – influential time in our lives and thank you uh, to Rob for letting us go back there for a few minutes Hi I'm Ian Chappell you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon The final uh, number today is a re-up from Dan Crowley and it's 436 in the AUD. Now Dan won the Wisden Almanac Riding Prize this year a brilliant piece on Aramco and his impressions of Aramco at the MCG during the, the T20 World Cup last mm. year. Now, before I do anything, a public apology to Dan. I was going to DM him about this number. Then I saw that he DM'd me and I hadn't replied. But the message he sent me was the day after my wedding in the middle of the Lord's Test. So I, I think that I'm excused. There was a bit going on that week uh, and I just mm. missed mm. it completely. So I'm, I'm sorry. He wrote a very clever piece about... Yes, you should have been sharing some direct messages with your wife, <laughs> not with other people at that point. After that, he sent me a clever piece he'd written about the Kerry Bairstow stumping to the words of Jerusalem, which was all excellent. And he's a young writer, a star. Um, hopefully it won't be long before he's everywhere. So, And I think given that he's born in 1989, that would make the 2013-14 Ashes a sweet spot for him. And that's where I'm going to take this answer, at least mm. peripherally. And I'll explain why. I'm going to and, hopefully... And it means that he, he has a link with Taylor Swift, which is a nice thing for you, Dan. Quite right, quite right. Now, in this message from Dan, I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this, he was asking me, how do I get pieces placed? You know, like a lot of young freelancers trying to make their way, not just young freelancers, all sorts of freelancers, we were the same. How do I take this idea I've got 
and convert it into written words for money. <laughs> How do I get paid to do something and get commissioned and, and so on, which is, you know, it's not easy. It's a tough world. But the, the 2013-14 summer is relevant to that for me. And I thought I would, <laughs> because it's actually another anniversary we're running up to, go through a little bit of that. So the number's 436 and the summer of 2013-14 um, which again, I think would have been about the right time for the peak of his cricketing fandom as a, a teenager, was when George Bailey made his test debut wearing cap 436 for Australia. And Oh, that's good. Yeah, and it's very relevant to me. Like, without putting too fine a point on this, there, there are a few things that if they didn't break a certain way, I never would have ended up in cricket journalism. And one of them relates to a piece I published with the ABC, my first ever bit of published work under my own name titled The Case for George Bailey and it was released on the 23rd of October 2013. So this set will go out probably, I think, on the 22nd of October 2023. Possibly it's gone out on the 23rd of October if we're releasing it on Monday. Jeff, we haven't decided upon that yet, but it's near enough to 10 years to the day to when that article went live with the ABC. And I think that's noteworthy because that's effectively when my career in, in this caper began. Now, the reason I was writing it was because politics had ended for me a couple of months earlier. The people had made that decision and fair enough, uh, we, we were defeated at the 2013 election, uh, the government I worked for. And I wasn't in great nick. I was tired and a little bit broken, probably more than a little bit broken. You know, I just was in that one of those phases in life, you know, you're up sometimes, you're down sometimes. This was very much a time when I was down. But earlier that year, in the January of 2013, when I was working for Wayne Swan, I'd written a piece, and I think I've talked about this on the pod before, and if I have, well, so be it. It was an essay that, in Wayne's name, that related to republicanism and body line eight decades on. It came out on the 25th of January, 2013. And it was an essay that we originally published, I think, with the Fabian Society. We had 1,800 words of that taken into the age and Sydney Morning Herald's opinion pages and the strong enough news hook as the Deputy Prime Minister calling for Australia to renew its debate around the Republic and using cricket to get there was sufficiently strong enough to get it on the front page on Australia Day, which was, you know, significant. So... I guess kind of like Dan here, who's had a little bit of success earlier this year with the Wisden Almanac, I wanted to get published again and often. I, I thought, well, this is something post-politics I, I want to do. But I had no idea what I was doing, really, when it came to getting pieces published in the freelance world. So instead of worrying about that, I just sat down and wrote this piece about George Bailey because it extended an idea which I was advancing in the pub, which is, mm. you know, about one day cricket being a pretty good place to get a sense of whether someone can make the step up to test cricket. I was thinking about people like Mark War, Adam Gilchrist, Andrew Simons, Damian Martin, who in their own way needed to use their one day form for Australia as an audition to either get into mm. the test team or in Martin's case, get back into the test team. And, it, you know, it kind of worked. And I thought, well, with Bailey, He's been captain of the one-day team periodically for, you know, by then, what, 20, what, when did he start as one-day captain, George? About 2012? Would that be about right? Around around that time anyway, he, he, on and off. Yeah, it's, it's it's 2013, I think, when he's, he, he gets given the T20 captaincy full-time first. Right. And then basically, because Michael Clark is still notionally the one-day captain at that point. But oh, right proceeds to not play every series, every one-day series that they have and basically until – I reckon, I think he plays something like four out of 24 ODIs over the two years before the World Cup and then went, thanks, champ, put the orange vest on, see you later. I, I um, think, I'll yeah, take it from here. and one of the, that, that's why this came up because I say discussions in the pub. It would have been a year earlier when I was in England in 2012 where Australia played mm. that weird five-game series where, where Bailey captained. 
as someone who wasn't yep. captain of the Test cricketer, but played a lot of cricket in England, you know, he knew the, yeah. the, the England world very well, a lot of experience, enjoyed mm-hmm. success with Tasmania, but wasn't a Test player. And this was kind of where I was going with this. So the intro, I went back and read the piece. I don't encourage you to do this. It's not very good. But if in politics, disunity is death, instability in a batting order surely constitutes a very serious illness. That's my first line of this piece. And I go on to lament that in the previous 12 months, 16 players had featured in Australia's top seven. It's not a bad, you know, it's not a bad stat. Bailey had made 92 the previous weekend for the one-day team in that crazy one-day series in India, that seven-game one-day series when we're talking about high-scoring one-dayers, this was wild. Like, you know, 350 barely got you a start. You know, it was um, Rohit and um, mm. James Faulkner made a rapid 100. and Yeah, Faulkner made the fastest Australian one-day 100 at the time, the record that's been broken since. But they were chasing 370 maybe and they ended up making 340 or so Australia. Yeah. Maxwell made – I actually remember this so vividly. Maxwell, <laughs> 60 off 22. I'm I'm dead confident if you go and look this up, that's what you'll find. 60 even off 22 balls for Maxwell and then Faulkner makes maybe it's 114, something like that, and the 100 comes off off about 60 balls. I don't remember the exact numbers there, but, yeah, Maxwell gets them going and then Faulkner carries it on, but they still fall 35 runs short, I'm going to say. The yep. Quiz me. See how I did if you're listening. So this splices in between the two Ashes series, the 2013 series you were, you were covering over in England that I was barely watching because it was the end of politics, that campaign for me and the 13-14 series. And yeah, I was glued in because I wasn't doing anything. I was on the couch in hindsight. I probably had, uh, you know, some form of depression that needed treating, um, which was the catalyst for quite a lot of therapy post-politics for me. But anyway, that's why I, I had this outlet, which was writing. And I had no idea how to get the fucking thing placed. You know, I, 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 I had all these bits in there, like I had a little drive-by at the Sydney tabloid media who were making the case for Nick Nadinson to play. I'm not even sure who I was um, having a crack at there. I've got no recollection of saying that. You know, I, I, I made the case that Michael Clark might not last five test matches with his back. Not a, not a, not a bad point either, I don't think. And, you know, if, if Clark falls down, then then Bailey might not be a bad stand-in captain and the mechanics behind all of that. Anyway, so I, I pitched it to, originally, Jeff, I thought I was going to get it in the raw. I don't think we've ever spoken about this, but had I had it placed in the raw, it's in, in all probability, you would have been giving it a heavy, heavy edit before releasing it into the wild because yeah. weren't you working as a sub-editor for the Raw at that point? Yeah, yeah, um, spot on. I was uh, I was uh, leading a group of sub-editors who they had me training some people up um, as to how to turn not-so-great writing into more palatable fare <laughs> yeah. um, because we, we published a lot of – the idea of that website was you published reader contributions. Yes. So anybody could send in a piece and, you know, unless it was sort of – 180 words of absolute garbage. You, you tried to publish most of what was sent in if you could make it readable. But, you know, some things were sent in that were really good and other things were sent in that were pretty rough because, you know, not everybody's a writer and not everybody has the training and background to be able to express themselves in the written word that well. So it was, it, you know, it wasn't a judgmental thing, but it was like let's let's help people get their idea across as well as they possibly can. And, and I can tell by reading back my own writing then, I hadn't found my voice yet. I was writing like I was writing a political op-ed. It wasn't me. It was like, yeah, anyway, and 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 how it played out logistically was that, this is more for Dan's benefit, I went to my contacts. I went to Lenore Taylor, who was working at The Guardian, who pitched it to, it was Tom Lutz, wasn't it, who was working as a sports editor at the time. Yep. He already had a piece ready to go on George Bailey, which was probably written by you, <laughs> you know, because you were you, 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 <laughs> so that Yeah, I was writing for The Guardian at the time. Too. So that, that, that didn't get up. 
I sent it to James Masala at the Herald. He was working at the Herald at the time, still is, but he was um, who his now wife, Karen Barlow, was at ABC Sport, sent it to her. She sent it to the ABC. Remember the drum, the ABC's opinion uh, yep. opinion website, which again- you Jonathan Green used to edit that way back when. That's, yeah. That was, that was some of my first public, that was my first published political piece was, right. was from John Green on the drum. Well, yeah, it definitely wasn't John Green by this point, but, it, but you know, they, they took it, they spruced it up, they bunged it online and- the night it went online was the night Bailey smacked 95 more in, in style. So the timing mm. was immaculate. The next day, everyone's kind of saying the same thing. What about George Bailey to bat number six in the ashes? And here I had this piece that's no work of art, but it says what people want to read, which is making the case why they can advance the argument to their own friends at the pub, I suppose. They told me it did really well and they offered me a weekly column that summer for the ashes of 13-14, knowing that I was available to do that, I was going to be going to the test matches as a punter. So 13-14 was where I got my training wheels, um, learning who was who in the zoo. That's when I first met you, you know, meeting some colleagues in the press box, writing once mm. a test. So I wasn't making much money, but it was my start and a decade on, you know, it is what it is. But um, uh, yeah, so thanks, George Bailey, for <laughs> eventually making that test team and um, the timing of that knock, which helps me get that column. And Dan, I hope that you're able to find your own path. But um, yeah, if uh, that's 10 years ago since I went through that process of writing that piece that proved timely and influential in, in what you and I have been able to go on and do. And now, now he's the selector. Um, so, you know, maybe maybe he had an eye for young talent even at the time, <laughs> George Bailey, without knowing it. Uh, there we go. All right, that brings us to the end of our new numbers. If you want to send us one, you can go to patron.com slash the final word. It's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You work that out on your own. That's the thing that you can do to help us keep making the show. Thank you to everybody who is involved. We love you all very much. A couple of confirmations of a couple of numbers we got right in recent times. I'm sure there'll be more, but I'm behind on the correspondence. <laughs> I am sorry if you're waiting for an email or a DM back. I apologize. My computer's broken. I'm in India. It's the World Cup. We're doing our best. I yes. Promise. We're doing our best. Right. Ken Edwards, the, the Golden Ducks for players averaging above 50. Um, and thanks to the Nerd Pledge Sleuth Group for helping with that as well. He says, excuse the pun, but well done on getting your ducks in a row, nailing most things for my Golden Duck-related Nerd Pledge the test batsman averaging over 50, spot on tracking it down. I loved the workings. I also loved the wander into players dismissed in the 90s. Adam, you're exactly right. Beers cost a lot less a few blocks away from Wentzless Square, where I live. You'll be charged for them in Czech Koruna, which means crowns, <laughs> rather than Zlotis, which is the Polish oh, yeah. currency. Yeah, so I, I, you know, we talked a lot about transposition mm, last mm. week, about getting numbers the wrong way around. When I wrote down the, 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 abbreviation for Czech currency. I wrote down CKZ instead of CZK. And so I read the Z and I was like, well, it must be a Zloty because what other currency is a Z? Uh, so somehow I, I changed the Czech currency on our show last week. Um, he says, the walk with the dog, listening to you guys en route every day at the moment is seriously enriched. Thanks. Thank you, Ken. Glad to know you're in the Czech are they still the Czech Republic? No. Yes. Well, uh, the not, Czech Re not really. No, no, they're, they're no they're, it's Czechia. Czechia. If you want to just go by the name that people in the country call it, which is probably what we should be doing. Like poor old Germany. They're like, no, it's 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 Deutschland. And everyone's like, Alemann. And they're like, no, Deutschland. Germany, Deutschland. <laughs> no, sorry, you don't get to call your country what you call it. We'll call it what we call it. You can fuck off. And, and someone from a country that's had, I guess, similar problems over the journey, Ireland. Sean Smith, thanks for yep. your piece on Law Kantaka. A nice surprise to wake up to. Harry Tector plays for YMCA. 
just down the road from Pembroke. I knew that didn't quite work. I, I, I had a feeling that the detective was at the other club. <laughs> Sean, Sean says that I might have met his dad at Heatley there. I've actually never met Heatley. We correspond occasionally, but we've never met. Heatley does all the um, all the live streaming for Irish cricket while his kids are playing for the country. It's pretty cool. The 99 on the back of my shirt is my highest score. I've never had a golden duck in any league or cup game and my duck for the final word game was second ball. <laughs> Although I smacked yes. the first you, one. You were remembering him. You were remembering it as a first ball. Though. Yeah, I mustn't have been watching too yeah. closely. I smacked the first ball to backward point where I was dropped. That's right. He was dropped first ball, bowled second ball. I was president of Pembroke immediately before Barry Tucker uh, when we celebrated our 150th anniversary and was umpire for Jeff's Golden Duck in the Ashes Oval Dream Boys game and didn't give it out on the field. I still don't think he hit it, uh, but it was very diplomatic of Jeff to turn around and walk. Carmel, who was his son, uh, sorry, his wife rather, and Noah, his son, say hello, uh, and you can expect a new pledge soon. Thank you, Sean Smith. Been a great joy of this summer uh, meeting you, and uh, and I'm sure I, I speak for many of our patrons who've uh, met you from Discord as well. I think that's it. That has brought us to the end of a story time from Bangalore slash London. Uh, thanks for tuning in with us. If you're one of those people who is listening to all of the daily shows and all of the weekly shows and all of the story times, then you are brave. You are braver than than any any that I've ever met, and I salute your courage as you go once more into the breach. This, you'll be pleased to know, brings you to the end of another show, which means you might have, I don't know, 12 hours break before the next early episode drops. That's the way it is at this point. We cannot stop and we will not stop. And uh, for a few of you out there, you're doing the same. And for those of the rest of you, do whatever you can. Do what you feel. Do what's manageable. It's up to you. We're, we're all, as they say, in this. I had to go.